Idlewild Arts respectfully acknowledges the Kawishba Kawiakna, also known as Kawia Band of Indians, and all nine sovereign bands of Kawia people who have stewarded this land throughout the generations and continue to steward this land for all future generations. Idlewild Arts Foundation is proud to present One World, One Idlewild, the series. In conversation with Pamela Jordan, the series brings together thought leaders, creatives, influencers, and change makers, highlighting the work of citizen artists whose careers and lives have been shaped by the transformative power of art. Have the courage to lead. The best thing that ever happened to me was the Northridge earthquake. Artists throughout the world, we are the speakers of truth. We are the most authentic expression of the day of the times. Be determined to get the most you can from every opportunity. And where you don't see opportunities, ask for them. Great leaders recognize that the work requires urgent patience. You can learn about classroom management. You can learn about the new curriculum. You can learn about the new way to teach whatever it is. But at the end of the day, if those students feel that love, they're more likely to listen, they're more likely to trust, they're more likely to be vulnerable. And in that space, that's where you can change some kid's life. From Idlewild Arts Foundation in Idlewild, California, I am Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. My guest today is Michael Kaiser, who served as president of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, DC from January, 2001, through August 2014. During his tenure, he expanded the educational and artistic programming for the United States Center for the Performing Arts, oversaw a major renovation effort of most of the center's theaters, and led the nation in arts management training. In honor of his accomplishments, the board of the Kennedy Center named him President Emeritus in 2014. Prior to joining the Royal Opera House, he was executive director of American Ballet Theater, where he erased its entire historic accumulated deficit, created a second company, greatly expanded national and international touring activity, and built an acclaimed series of education programs. He has also served as general manager of the Kansas City Ballet, where he erased the company's deficit. Michael Kaiser, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It is a real pleasure. It's a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Now, in full disclosure, you have worked with Idlewild Arts on strategic planning and board development and more, which of course makes me even more excited about speaking with you today. I've been working in art schools for over 30 years, and I treasure the passion of the young artists who find their way to Idlewild Arts. Everyone has a story about their transformational experience when they fell in love with music or art. Do you have an early memory of being transfixed in the arts? I absolutely do. I was fortunate enough to have a grandfather who was a professional violinist in the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. And I was allowed when I was very, very young to go to rehearsals at Carnegie Hall and to sit alone in the theater with my grandmother and listen to this amazing orchestra who I thought was playing just for me. <laughs> and the music was so magnificent and the experience was so overwhelming and one couldn't help but be seduced. 
So at a, then at a very young age, you, did you want to be a performer or what, what were your thoughts then? I wanted to be a singer and my grandfather wanted me to be a violinist, but I had no talent for the violin and I was so awful. My parents knew they should encourage me to practice, but I was so bad they couldn't stand it. <laughs> so I really turned my attention more to singing and that became a real focus of mine for, my, for, for me for the, my entire youth. You know, I think again about uh, being at Idlewild Arts and uh, all of the parents are supportive or the students wouldn't be here, but you run into the occasional father in particular who says, oh my God, what if this doesn't work out for my child? They want to be an artist. Did your parents feel that way or did you encounter that anywhere along the way? You must have met my parents because that's <laughs> what they said from day one. Um, and I did well in school and they thought I had other opportunities. So they were sort of disappointed that I wanted to be a professional opera singer. The good news for them was I was truly horrible. So <laughs> after I got to my, through high school, I realized I just wasn't good enough. And so I changed my focus. Well, so that's interesting. That brings me to, you know, after college, I believe it was after college, correct me if I'm wrong, you started a consulting firm. And uh, I believe when you started, you worked with for-profit companies, and then somewhere along the line, you shift your focus to not-for-profit institutions. Tell me a little bit about that and why you made the switch. Sure. I knew, even when I was in college, that I wanted to work with arts organizations, but there was no career back then called arts management. That wasn't something you could be. You fell into it if you were lucky enough. So I thought what I would have to do is more enter, rather enter into the corporate world. So I worked on Wall Street and I did all the normal things. And I eventually started my consulting business for corporations that was pretty successful and still operates today. But I realized after a few years that it really wasn't what I wanted to do for my whole life. And I was asked to be on the board of the Washington Opera in Washington DC where my business was located. And I was put on the board of this opera company and I was the worst board member in the history of the world <laughs> because I really wanted to run the place, which is not what the board's job is. And the head of the opera company was very polite and very kind and very exasperated with me. But what I realized was I had to get off the board, sell my business and find a job in the arts. And that's exactly what I did. That, that's so interesting. You're absolutely right. Even when I think about um, working in arts administration in a school, you know, of course, there aren't as many arts schools as there should be in our nation. And when you think about that, there, of course, are very few people who have led them. And you, you do carve out that path in a very unique way. Um, you served as president of the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And prior to that, you led a number of arts organizations, including Royal Opera House, American Ballet Theater, and Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater Foundation, to name just a few of them. Is there anything that these organizations had in common that drew you to them? Because I would imagine everybody wanted you, and you also saw many opportunities that you would like to do, but you were drawn to those organizations in particular. Right. The three you just mentioned had one thing in common, which was they were all about to be bankrupt. And that actually was what I developed as a specialty. My first job running an arts organization was running the Kansas City Ballet, which also was about to be bankrupt. I didn't take the job for that reason, but I figured out a way to make it healthy. And so that became my calling card. 
And so then I went to Alvin Ailey, which was amazing. And then I went to ABT, which was amazing. And then I went to the Royal Opera House, which was truly amazing. And in each case, my job was to make them financially healthy. They all had been through periods of deep distress. That, but that wasn't a deterrent. As you looked at it, did you learn about it That's, before no, that you was the took joy. the job? No, I knew that. That was what was exciting was, was how do you take this great organization? All three organizations you mentioned are amazing arts organizations with great artists and great importance to the communities they serve. So it was important they not go away. And so my challenge was how do I make them healthy? And no, that, that was not at all a deterrent. That was actually something that encouraged me to want to have the job. But none of them wanted me. I had to apply and work really hard to get all three of those jobs. Um, no, no one was begging me to come. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that really brings me to, I can see your passion for, um, for arts management. Um, you started writing at a, at a pretty early in your career, and you've penned eight books since 1981, six of which I believe are focused on arts management. What are some of the fundamental challenges that struggling arts organizations find them, themselves facing? Sure. Um, let me start by saying the reason I wrote the books was not just because I wanted to write, was because, again, when I entered this field, it wasn't a field. There, was, there were a few books out there, and there were some real experts who were in the field, but there was no training available. There was nothing to read. And so I entered this writing business, if you will, and started teaching arts management pretty early because I felt we needed to really codify the laws and the rules of what made health in the arts. And I didn't think it was well known then. And that's what I learned by running troubled organizations is what did you have to do to be healthy? And for a lot of organizations, they get sick because they don't understand that what drives people to support them is really good programming and really good marketing. And if you do really good work, and if you tell everyone around it, you'll sell your tickets and you'll raise your money. But most organizations, particularly when they're financially unsound, the first things they cut from their budgets are programming and marketing. Well, when you cut those, you cut the very reason people support you and you get sicker. And so, so many organizations I've observed and the ones I've worked with got sicker over time because they made the wrong choices about where to invest the scarce resources they have. You know, building on that, I think in particular about your book, The Art of the Turnaround. I remember reading that as a, a pretty young um, administrator and, um, and particularly, I believe you wrote that right around the time of the recession, of the economic recession. What did you want leaders to get from that book in particular? Because many arts organizations at that time were really reeling due to the recession. Yeah, I think if, if I have to summarize it in one sentence, it would be, I wanted to give people hope that mm -hmm. this, the th there's a very thin line between sickness and health in the arts because no one lends us very much money, so we can't get into huge debt. And so we, you can get healthy if you do it exactly right. And I wanted people to read stories of the organizations I turned around and hear about how I'd done it, because I felt that that might give them the hope to do so as well, and not to prematurely shut down organizations because they were going through a bad time. 
You know, I, I remember that book being so important, not only to me, but you mentioned boards, you know, and I find very often um, they're volunteers and they are very much a part of the board, not just because of the mission, but often because of the leader. And I remember such clarity and wonderful examples uh, in the art of the turnaround that was good for my entire institution. And I felt there was a, a turn, there was a change uh, in my relationship with the board and, and the work that we did after that. Thanks. You know, almost nobody's training board members. They come onto boards filled with passion and generosity of spirit and oftentimes resources but no one's teaching them what really makes success. And we're in a weird field in the arts. And so it's not, you can't just apply what you know from your bank or from your law firm and say, that's gonna make the organization healthy. Very often, actually, it's what leads to the problems if board members don't have the knowledge they need to, to really think about what's really critical for this organization to attain health. I'm really happy to hear you say that. I, I love governance work. Um, I serve on a number of boards and have, you know, in the last 20 years of my career or so. And, um, and I just love it. I think that the, the opportunity to think generatively about the organization, when I think about the work I'm doing, building on the founders of Idlewild Arts, um, the clarity of vision that they had, um, what an extraordinary opportunity. And I think it it could be very selfish to not continue to do that with your board, to really think about, you know, as uncertain as 2035 is going to be, it's still the board's role to ensure that this institution is here at that time and continues to serve its mission and serve the students. The challenge becomes if the staff leadership doesn't have the training they need to do their jobs well then the board loses faith and then they start to poach and they start to impose their points of view, which oftentimes are no better um, informed than what the staff leadership is doing. This is why arts management training is so important and why I've made that a theme of my career. You're listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We'll be right back. Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code OneWorld2023 to receive a $5 discount to the 2023 Kids and Teens Summer Programs. This is One World, One Idlewild, the series, presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. My guest today is Michael Kaiser, who served as president of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. from January 2001 through August 2014. 
I know in 2008, you launched Arts in Crisis at the Kennedy Center. Um, and, you know, when I read about that, it reminded me so much of the times we're in now. And I know in your current institute, you, I believe you offered a free hour of advice to any nonprofit arts organization in the United States that wanted it. Is, is that right? That's what I did now, yes, during COVID. And we worked with almost 600 organizations. And just to really give some confidence and some ideas, there's not too much you can do in an hour. The Arts in Crisis Initiative in 2009-10 was a little bit more intensive. What we did was two things. Number one, I went to all 50 states and gave public presentations, talking to boards and staffs about what to do and what not to do in the recession. And then we, more importantly, we set up a computer system where people could volunteer their time to be volunteer mentors to arts organizations. And also arts organizations could ask for help. And we matched mentors and consultants for almost 500 organizations who got free consulting. There was no money changing hands. Wow. But the idea was let's take people who know something and let's match them with organizations that have a need. And not one of those 500 organizations went away during the recession. That's extraordinary. And, and, and it costs zero. It costs exactly zero. That's just ex extraordinary. And again, it's clearly your passion for um, arts organizations. You know, I've always found your books to be instructional, but also very inspirational. You give advice and then multiple examples of that advice in action at various organizations. In one of your most recent books, The Cycle, you outline a process designed to help organizations be fiscally solvent and continue to grow their base of support. One thing you talk about in The Cycle, and I, I would love to talk about all of it, but I remember being so drawn to um, the importance of great art. Now, I, I, that made me laugh out loud when I read the book because every arts organization will tell you they're doing great art. They believe they're doing the best art. So how do you define great art and why is that so important in, in what you describe as the cycle? I'm really trying to have organizations engage people with their art, have them feel so close to it and excited by it. There needs to be an element of surprise in the work we do. It can't just be this year we play Beethoven's Ninth, Last year we did Beethoven's seventh and next year it's Beethoven's fifth. That's not dynamic enough. That doesn't engage people. I like to use a concept I call transformational art. These are projects that are so large, so exciting, so dynamic that they change the way people think about us. They transform the community's view of our organization. And I think most arts organizations aren't ambitious enough with their art and they're too careful, they're too scared about budget and they're worried about financials and they let the budget size determine the art rather than dreaming about which project would be so exciting and so wonderful and something they've always wanted to do. And the problem therefore is that the art doesn't fully engage the community because it's not dreamy enough. And I think that's a problem of the current economics of the arts. And unfortunately, they make things worse for us because the more conservative we are in our art making, the less interesting our art is. And then you have Netflix coming out with six new series 
And people are talking about the Netflix series and not about the arts from the arts institutions because our work just isn't interesting enough. I would imagine that's, that's hard for some organizations to hear, but also counterintuitive. You talked about, you know, when they're struggling financially, the first place they want to turn is, you know, from programming. And it sounds like you're saying, no, in, invest more in the art. I got to American Ballet Theater. They were in desperate financial situation. And I announced the largest artistic project in its history before or since. And everyone in the earth thought I was insane. <laughs> Except people started to say, well, that's interesting. I would like to be helpful or involved in that. Um, people want to think and be involved in projects which challenge them and excite them. And we for, if we forget that, then we bore people. People talk about donor fatigue, donors getting tired. You can't ask a donor for 10 years in a row because they'll get tired. There's no such thing as donor fatigue. There's donor boredom. If we're boring, the donors won't want to give to us anymore. If we're constantly coming up with something interesting and vital and special, the donors are going to want to give to us. That's so critical to being healthy as a cultural organization. You know, I, I, I just encourage everybody to Google you and see all your books and get them <laughs> if you're passionate about arts management as I am. Um, but, you know, um, this, just take a minute. The cycle is fascinating. It really is. And you talk about the donors as family. Just talk about what is the cycle. And because it, it sounds like sure. the thing that really has turned organizations around. Sure. I'm happy to talk about it. For anyone who's more interested on the Coursera website, I teach a whole course that's free. Anyone can take a six-week course on the cycle for free. And um, I have taken that course, and it's, it's, along with the book, it's wonderful. It really is. This, the cycle is a very simple concept. It basically says to be successful in the arts, you have to start from really great programming. But that's not enough. You have to market that programming. And I break marketing into two pieces. One piece I call programmatic marketing. That's the marketing to sell tickets or get students to enroll in a school. And the other is called institutional marketing, which is the marketing we do to get people excited about the organization as a whole. When the programming is strong and the marketing is aggressive, people want to join the family of the organization. The family are the people who help the organization. They are the ticket buyers and the donors and the volunteers and the board members. And when the programming is exciting and the marketing is strong, people want to join this family. They want to be engaged. And when the family is happy and engaged, they produce revenue. And when that revenue, very importantly, goes back into more good programs, that gets marketed well, the family gets bigger and happier, and they produce more revenue. That's the cycle. It's pretty simple. Implementing it isn't necessarily simple. But if I could give a quick example of this with Alvin Ailey, when I got to Alvin Ailey, in 1991, they were very, very bad financial shape, thinking about declaring bankruptcy. And everyone said to me at the organization, why are we so sick? We're so famous. Everyone knows Alvin Ailey. Everyone's heard of us. And then shortly after I arrived, the author Alex Haley died, the author of the book Roots. And we got thousands of letters of condolence. People thought Alex Haley was Alvin Ailey, which told me we weren't quite as famous as we thought we were. <laughs> And so I had to put in place an institutional marketing effort 
that made people understand the great programming we did and that we didn't write roots. And so I'll, we did, we were performed on the Donahue show. We did President Clinton's inaugural gala. We did a big exhibition at the Smithsonian. We did a big free concert in Central Park that CNN covered. The city of New York named our street Alvin Ailey Place. We published books about the company. We did a big gala with Jesse Norman and Al Jarreau and Dionne Warwick and Maya Angelou and Anna Devere Smith and Denzel Washington. For that year, this was all over one year. During that year, everywhere you saw in New York, there was Ailey doing something really exciting. That got people excited about the organization. We already were doing great dance, but we weren't marketing our institution. And so the combination of the great work Ailey was already doing and this institutional marketing brought tons of people to us who had never supported us before, had never seen us before. And they, we built our family of donors and that family produced enough revenue to pay off the entire historic deficit in one year. And it started Ailey on a path for great success. The year I started, Ailey had a budget of $6 million. Today, Ailey has a budget of $48 million. That growth happened as we started the cycle humming for that organization. You know, and I have to say, it's not a miracle or wishful thinking. You know, it's, it's really steady work and, and the, the donors and, you know, and in discipline, our case, discipline. discipline. Yes, yes, yes. That's really what it is. You know, um, I'm glad you mentioned your, your Coursera course. Um, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a combination of, of reading materials and reading the book and their videos, and it's, it's very accessible. Um, and again, I, I really see the, the path, if you will, just of your career and, you know, helping, forming, uh, nurturing arts leaders. Um, you, you founded the Kennedy Center Arts Management Institute, which is now the DeVos Institute of Arts Management at the University of Maryland, and you convene a group of fellows each year. Um, tell us a little bit about the fellowship program and what you're hoping to achieve with, through the Institute. The fellowship program is a wonderful program that brings young and mid-career arts managers together to discuss issues of arts management. We just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the fellowship. For 20 years, we've been bringing these wonderful young managers together. They come for the month of July, three years in a row, and they learn about marketing and fundraising and board development, but mostly they also build relationships with each other and build a network um, that's international because our fellows come from all over the world. I believe today we've had fellows from 87 different countries. And so our fellows really are being trained, but they're also building their own network of individuals that they can count on and they can talk to and they can learn from in the years of their career. We think this is a really critical program because it establishes a group of now several hundred people who all speak the same arts management language, can talk to each other, collaborate with each other, and hopefully run their organizations why, what, I'm probably asking the obvious, but I love it that it's, it's international. Um, and, but, why, but why did you do that? Are, are, I mean, I guess I'm asking, are there um, challenges that are unique to arts organizations in the United States? Or what is it that you wanted to you know, accomplish or, or get at by, by convening an international group of arts leaders? Few things. Number one, the arts truly are international. We're, we we can't really put geographic boundaries to our artistic creativity. 
but also there are different situations about running an organization in Russia versus running an organization in China versus running an organization in the United States versus running an organization in Mexico. And the students learn from each other by learning the various constraints they face as they try and make great arts institutions in their home countries. Um, and so we think it's really valuable learning to hear from arts leaders from all over the world. You're listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We'll be right back. To learn more about the Academy and its world-renowned summer program, please visit idlewildarts.org. To subscribe to the One World, One Idlewild podcast, please visit idlewildarts.org slash the series. At Idlewild Arts, we believe that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts by visiting idlewildarts.org giving to make a gift today. This is One World, One Idlewild, the series, presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. My guest today is Michael Kaiser, who served as president of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. from January 2001 through August 2014. You have an extraordinary career and have had a major impact on arts leaders and organizations around the world as we are speaking right now. In your book, and I believe this is your last book, it might not be, but um, your most recent book, I should say, because I hope you're still writing as we speak. But in your book, Curtains, The Future of Arts in America, you point out multiple threats facing arts organizations. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the pandemic, but I believe the book was was um, released pre-pandemic. So w- talk about those threats and, and even may, maybe how they show up uh, in the pandemic. You know, what will be the impact of, at that time? I wrote this book in 2013. Um, I was on my honeymoon, which tells you something about my marriage. <laughs> but but uh, the book was written in 2013, so it was well before the pandemic. And really what it focused upon were, was the impact of electronics on the arts. Um, electronics are having such a huge impact on every aspect of our lives, including in the arts. And I wanted arts organizations, arts leaders, and artists to think very carefully about the way they engage with technology, the way they use technology, and to think through what the implications would be for the field um, if we embrace technology in very active ways. Clearly, this is very germane to the pandemic where we were all forced to think about our work electronically and to accelerate the trends to electronic distribution of the arts. It's wonderful when people all over the world have access to arts made all over the world, but there's also cost to it because what we're finding is that while many people are enjoying arts online, very few people are paying for it. And so the question is, how do arts organizations survive? How do artists survive if they're creating work, putting it online, having wonderful access for lots of different people, but never find the resources to pay for making that art? How do we survive as a field? Uh, Do you have an answer? (laughs) 
Well, I think we have to be so interesting that we also can draw people to us physically. And we also have to be so engaging that someone who views our work online also feels a sense of obligation and joy in supporting us financially. That last has not been happening. And so there's a real serious concern coming out of the pandemic. What will happen to organizations that have built large online presences if they don't get any revenue for it? You, um, I mean, you really, to think about when you wrote that book and, and you know, its impact even when you think about the pandemic, um, I think about, obviously I work with, with young artists, um, even younger than, than college, and I think about how different their world is in terms of how they create music and or art and promote it and what's available to them. So it really is, it's a, it's a question to wrestle with, but I guess I also would like to know um, what you think about building young art audiences with arts organizations, right? How do they sort of, maybe it's not balancing these two, but, but it feels like it is sort of like subtitles that came into, into the opera. It's critical to build young audiences. I would argue it's not simply virtual work that builds young audiences. I believe what builds young audiences is allowing young people to participate. Young people don't just want to watch stuff anymore. They want to do stuff. And so it's why I think immersive theater is becoming so successful. People want to be into something. They want to do something. They want to participate somehow. And so I think we who care about arts have to think about ways to let people in and not think of ourselves as behind this curtain that no one can pierce doing our work and then you're lucky to watch it. We have to find ways to allow people actually to create art with us. And also we have to recognize that we of my generation have artificial boundaries, have put artificial boundaries around different art forms. We think opera is different from ballet, is different from contemporary dance, is different from filmmaking, is different from puppet, puppet making, etc. Whereas for young people, they don't care so much about these boundaries. And what's wonderful for me to watch young creative people is how they conceive of projects that we would never have been allowed to do when I was young because they fell within three different genres of art making. How wonderful that we don't have to think about art in that straitjacket. Do you find your the fellows in the institute are not not so much wrestling with it even they're they're just from a different generation as you say are they really stepping into that space about you know making art accessible in institutions for young artists young goers It depends upon their own personal backgrounds and you know if you've been steeped as a if you started classical piano when you were 3 and all you've done is study Chopin and and stayed in your studio, you probably don't have that expanded worldview that others may have. And so I think it depends upon the personal background of the arts manager. And I think we have to, as arts leaders, encourage the breaking of boundaries and the, and allow people to create whatever they want to create, whatever they can dream about. I love that about this, this generation, this crowdsourcing, they want to get something done. They don't have to learn to go and write a proposal and, and wait, reach six people and hope someone. It, it really is a beautiful thing. What, what can be lost though, and, and where we have to be careful, is that certain of our art forms require large groups of individuals collaborating and building ensemble. A great ballet company, a great symphony, 
rely upon a group of people who don't just come together for a week or two, but they work together for years. That size of enterprise costs money and it costs money every year, year in, year out, good economy, bad economy. And so what we want to do is encourage all kinds of experimentation, all kinds of new art, but I for one don't wanna lose some of the art forms that require that big investment of time and money because I think they're equally beautiful and meaningful and relevant. I, I love that. I appreciate you saying, saying that. Um, I think it's a wonderful time, I mean, in spite of the pandemic, but really um, we're mission driven and we get to imagine and reimagine um, how we deliver that mission, how we fulfill that mission. And um, it's an exciting time to be in, a, in an art school, in an arts organization with young people and really thinking about how we do that. We talk about boards earlier, how we make sure that that is here for the next generation. Absolutely right. It's, it's a critical part of what we do and we have to do better with public education and the arts because we have to make sure truly that every child has equal access to participate in the arts because the arts allow young people to exercise their creative muscles and we are living in a creative economy. And those who have the easiest, freest time thinking about themselves as creative beings are going to be the most successful in whatever field they choose. You know, you mentioned you mentioned your honeymoon. So I want to ask you a question um, because I, I want to hear it and I'd love for you to share it with our audience. Um, you, I read that you were married in 2013 to economist John Roberts. That's no affiliation with the Supreme Court Chief Justice. But your wedding did have a connection to the Supreme Court. Can you tell us, can you share that story? Sure. I was very fortunate running the Kennedy Center, which is the largest cultural organization, performing arts organization in Washington, D.C. And so you get to meet lots of people and get to know lots of people. And um, one of the people I got to know best was um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Justice Ginsburg was kind enough to officiate at our wedding. Um, and there is a funny postscript to this. You mentioned Chief Justice John Roberts. My husband's name is John Roberts. And the Chief Justice was at a performance at the Kennedy Center about a month after our wedding, which got a certain amount of press, not having anything to do with me or John, but with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's participation. This was the first time that a Supreme Court Justice had officiated at a same-sex wedding. And it was a few months after their landmark ruling about that, that made same-sex marriage legal. And we were at the Kennedy Center, my husband and I, and there's Justice Roberts, who I knew a bit. So I decided to introduce my husband, John Roberts, to Chief Justice John Roberts. And we walked up to Chief Justice and I said, Mr. Chief Justice, want you to meet my husband, John Roberts. And the Chief Justice did pan, he said, everyone's congratulating me on my wedding. Um, and um, it was a fun moment. And he's a, he's, he, he was very, very kind to us. And we were very grateful to Justice Ginsburg and very sad to lose him. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I, I, that, that's just perfect. I didn't know about the Chief Justice coming, coming to the Kennedy Center. That's wonderful. Michael Kaiser, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to know you better and to share your illustrious career with our guests. 
Thank you, Pam. It's always a joy to spend time with you. My guest today has been Michael Kaiser, President Emeritus of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and author of eight books, including Curtains, The Future of Art in America. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We'll be right back. At Idlewild Arts, we believe that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts by visiting idlewildarts.org giving to make a gift today. From Idlewild Arts Foundation in Idlewild, California, I am Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. Today, I'm speaking with Ella Garns, a senior who attends Idlewild Arts Academy. Ella, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this is an exciting week. I'm glad I caught you because graduation's on Friday. I know you're ready for that. Yes, I'm very excited. I don't know what to decorate my cap yet. <laughs> I've been debating all week what I should do with the cap. I'm you know like, you'll do it Thursday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll figure it out. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm always excited to bring our student stories um, to our audience. And so tell me about growing up. You, Where did you grow up? And was there art and music or in your family? Or give us the story. So I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, both of my parents are filmmakers. So I grew up with heavy art around me 24-7. And I grew up on set all the time. <laughs> uh, so film is kind of in my blood, I would say. Um, and we used to live out in California, but then they moved for production to Atlanta. Um, and now we're back in California for production. That's kind of how I bumped into Idlewild too, was that I was looking for a new school while they were filming here. So well, art has been there, yeah. Well, that explains a few things because some people <laughs> would think it's the craziest thought on earth to go to a boarding <laughs> school. But other than moving to California, how did you find your way to Idlewild Arts? So I knew McKinsey. Jordan and Jordan Rucker uh, from RCA, Ron Clark Academy. Oh, did and you go to Ron Clark Academy? I did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how exciting. Okay, now I know. I've been down the slide. Down the yeah, oh, really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was looking for a boarding school so that my parents wouldn't have to pick me up every day from getting off set. Uh, and McKinsey recommended it for me and like changed everything. And I've enjoyed it, you know, ever since. <laughs> That is, that's really exciting. So you, you, I mean, you came from a, a, an absolutely marvelous elementary school uh, mm -hmm. and then coming here uh, into high school, it really does talk about um, your dedication and you, what you just said, something that was so important is being picked up after school and, you know, taken somewhere else and to do all yeah. of these things. And so yeah. here at Idlewild Arts, they get all wrapped up into, you know, your everyday experience, right? Yeah. No, I was going to say it's been really, uh, easy to like have to balance my school life and my art life I mean okay it is a challenge but I have a lot more control over my schedule and I, I forgot you know my freshman year of high school when I was still in Georgia I would have to get picked up every day or I need to find a ride home or I would take the bus and now it's kind of like I wake up and I decide I'm going to class and I'm going to do this and I'm going to go home I'm going to take a nap 
you know, some, you have a lot of control over what you do. Right. Which is going to serve you very, very well, of course, when you get to college and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You know, filmmaking, um, one thing I've learned being associated both with Idlewild Arts and, and around the arts so long, there's so many different aspects to filmmaking. And so what does this program um, how do you learn about all the different aspects? And is there one aspect of filmmaking that you particularly like? Yeah. So the classes are pretty much broken up that you can take, you can get your foot in pretty much every department of film. Um, you come in, you'll take like a base screenwriting class, a base uh, production and art class, uh, producing and cinematography. And then from there, the teachers will basically monitor you. And even though you'll go up in the courses as you get um, older in the year, you, you'll notice that certain teachers will tend to mentor you a little bit more as they get to know you. So I'm really into producing. I'm going into college um, to, I want to study producing and a little bit of like set design so Catalina is like my favorite okay I can I can't say favorite faculty I don't think that's right of me to say um which like she's like my my go-to person every time I'm up in the soundstage to get advice from because she is like the OG producer in our department in my opinion and she gives out the best advice when I need it um and has really like helped me throughout my time here so it depends. Uh, just you just gotta move your way around and get to know each teacher, and then you know you'll figure it out. Like I came in and I didn't even like screenwriting, and then I met Ken, <laughs> and Ken changed my whole perspective on writing and screenwriting in general. And then I grew a love for it. So you never know. And and where are you going in the fall? How are you going to continue in filmmaking, or where are you going to school in the fall? Yes, I'm going to Columbia College Chicago in the fall for a BFA in film and television. Uh, I'm extremely excited. I love Chicago. My dad's from Chicago, so I can't wait. And he went to Columbia too. Oh, exciting. Well, I'm from Chicago, so I'm very excited about that. I do not miss the cold, but yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you're going back there. Um, well, you know, one of the things I wanted to um, talk to you about or have you share, I know that you're president of the Black Student Union here at Idlewild Arts Academy. And uh, I interviewed uh, in last season, I interviewed Aminta Sky and Aminta started the BSU here and you all have done some really fabulous work um, it, it, since you started. So uh, tell me about being president of, of BSU and maybe what's what some of the uh, projects or you know why it's important here at Idlewild Arts. Yeah uh, so when I came is when everything was starting with the BSU and I was super excited about this idea um, of a Black Student Union on campus because there is a very tiny amount of Black students on campus and I think it's important to acknowledge that we are not all Black American on campus. We come from a lot of different places, which like plays a big aspect onto our connection that we have with each other and how important it is for us to talk and like get to know each other. It's such a rare experience to have like on one place. Uh, and I don't know, I think our BSU here is like so unique. Like you really won't find anything else like it. I remember what really stood out to me is when I met Joe Davis. Uh, when I first came and I, I don't know, it's just you meet so many different types of black people and it expands your mind on what the what else is out there. You know, I'm from Atlanta. I know a very specific type of black people. So it was really cool. And uh, in, in a year we've done we've done a pretty good amount of like activities this year. We had a block party, which was really fun. Um, so we could just hang out and dance. We did a movie night. We had a game night like 
like a few days ago. And, you know, we had our art show as usual. Um, I hosted the art show last year for us uh, and we did it again this year. I don't know. It's just, it's about feeling as if you have a community to support you on campus. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how amazing anywhere might be. At the end of the day, you just want to hang out with the people you can relate to sometimes and feel as if they are there to catch you if you fall. Um, and we have a very, like I said before, a very special group of Black students on this campus who are all artists. And that's what really like ties us together. At the end of the day, I feel like we all came from places where we felt as if our art couldn't be shown or it didn't, it wasn't understood, you know? And when we meet each other, we're like, oh, you're black and you like this and we're the same. Like, oh, I haven't met you before. So I, it's a really rare experience. And the school kind of lets it happen in high school, which I mean, you know, you wouldn't really find till college. <laughs> You know, one thing that's interesting, which is where you started that saying, you know, then you're not all black Americans. Right. Yeah. Um, and so and how how is that uh, experience being, you know, with black people from all over the world? Really, you mentioned Joe mm -hmm. Davis. He's from Jamaica, I think. Jamaica. Yeah. Um, so how how does that make it, th this experience different, too, than right. let's say when you were in Atlanta? Right. Uh, different history, completely different history. Uh, we all have our own it, I don't know it opened my brain up so much about what the world was uh so like when I met Joe he had a completely different understanding of like systematic racism than I did and we had to like start over and find a middle ground and like build up from there and my mind was absolutely blown uh you know about what other types of black people were out there and the research I needed to do so I could feel as if I know what's out there um I'm trying to think I remember we had Niels, he was from Germany. I've never met a black person from Germany at all. So that was a really cool experience. Um, and Mbuya too. I think Mbuya was, was Mbuya from South Africa? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yes, yes, her dad was South Africa. <laughs> it was just a wide range. Like, it was a very wide range, something very rare. And I don't know, it was something very unique, one, to meet another black person from another country. I mean, you, you could probably bump into that, but to meet another black artist from out the country, it's just, it's really cool. It's really cool. So many different experiences to share. You know, um, you're talking about your experience in the film department, your experience mm -hmm. with the BSU and, and really learning to balance and, and have ownership of your day and, you know, yeah. investing your time. Um, now that you're leaving Idlewild Arts, what would be your advice to someone who's coming in? You know, how do you take advantage of it or how do you manage it all even? Yeah, I would say just take all the opportunities you have, specifically if you go for film. You know, we have like a cage full of equipment. Check it out. Like, take it with you. Go shoot something. Go take a photo. Go do whatever. Do something at least once a day where you feel like, okay, I practiced my art. I did something today. And I have a campus full of resources and I took like advantage of it. Um, like, that's the biggest thing I would say. I feel like at home, I didn't have the opportunity to really play with that you know there's so many like different collaborations you could do with different artists on campus if you just start talking and like really push yourself to go outside and like make connections mm -hmm. um it's what saved me this year you know my film my capstone was a big project it was a big AEL project and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't started talking and work with Taya and you know in music and I worked with Alicia and I worked with Ezra um, and I worked with Lillian Tuki and creative writing to help me with the story and help me with the costumes you know 
just take advantage of what you have around you because it's very rare to find such creative and talented, really creative, talented people in like high school in one spot together who are eager to help each other if you just ask. If you could think back, you know, three years ago, how was it to come in as a freshman or in your case as a sophomore? Yeah. How easy are those conversations, right? How, how whether it's in your department or cross disciplines or how easy are those conversations or how is it for somebody to enter into this community? It's pretty, it's pretty simple. My first week, okay, I'm also kind of cheating because I had McKinsey when I got here. So she like, she made, she introduced me to everybody when I got here. She made it very simple for me. Um, but still, like when you come on campus, I remember when I first got on campus, like, I don't know, I made, I made, I met Jaya. Jaya, do you know Jaya in theater? Yes. The second we became friends immediately. And she was like, let's walk back to Hood. I mean, Pearson together. I had no idea who she was. And like, we just started to talk whole conversation about whatever I don't even remember uh and it was right off the bat like these people are open and eager to meet other artists like them you know nobody's like wanting to just sit in the corner and be quiet like they're like I do this and I do that you like this I never met a teen who was this invested in producing at such a young age you know (laughs) like I want to talk to you um and the seniors and prefects the prefect program is always really helpful because it makes a group of people who are extra welcoming on campus and make it super easy. Um, I remember the prefects being like the number one people on campus that like helped me figure out where I was going. And Mackenzie was a prefect too. So it was like, I had a win-win. <laughs> Mackenzie knew everyone. Yes. <laughs> well, this is great. I, I thank you so much for speaking yeah. with me, Ella, and I wish you all the best. I can't wait to see what you do both at Columbia, but as you go out into the world, I know you're going to take it by force i'm sure thank you so much i appreciate it (laughs) thank you my guest today was ella garns a senior at idlewild arts academy i spoke with ella via zoom on may 23rd 2022 you've been listening to one world one idlewild the series presented by idlewild arts foundation we at idlewild arts have always believed that art is the greatest teacher of humanity We continue to believe that the practice of creativity hones a person's desire and ability to affect global change. My name is Pamela Jordan. Thank you for listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series, a creation and production of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Executive producer, Pamela Jordan, directed and produced by Rose Colella. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Justin Holmes. Graphic design by Mark Biley. Marketing and publicity by Dana Albright, Molly Maple, and Alice Metcalf. Marketing assistance by Rose Colella. Production and research assistance by Keith Miller. Creative consultation by Palencia Turner. Technical support, John Lawrence, Michael Quick, and Tom Wadbrook. Our theme song is Beaconing composed and performed by the incomparable Marshall Hawkins. Pamela Jordan was appointed president of Idlewild Arts Foundation in 2014. Prior to this position, she held the distinction of being the first female and first African-American head of school of the Chicago Academy for the Arts, a position she held for 12 years. She currently serves on the boards of the California Association of Independent Schools, the Association of Boarding Schools, and Art Schools Network. 
Pamela is also a member of the Global Education Advisory Council for Shanghai Hauer Collegiate School, Kushan. One World, One Idlewild, the series is a production of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Any use of materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of Idlewild Arts Foundation is strictly prohibited.